Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and joining us today is Mike Maples, founding partner of Floodgate. This was a real treat for me to record it, as without a doubt, Mike is one of the true luminaries of the seed stage investing world and has invested in such companies like Twitch, Twitter, and Okta. Floodgate has managed over $400 million over six funds with over 300 investments and 79 exits. Before starting Floodgate in 2006, Mike was a two-time successful entrepreneur. He's also known for coining the term Thunder Lizards to describe the companies that become category-defining leaders. In this episode, we talk about the early days of starting Floodgate, the mental model they use to evaluate potential investments, and the lessons they've learned over the last 15 years of running a successful early-stage fund. Now, without any delay, let's get into the show to hear all of that and more. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Samir. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, I am too. And every time we have a conversation, I seem to learn something new. And I know this is going to be no exception. But before we get into things like starting and building a firm, your view on investing and portfolio construction, let's first take a stroll down memory lane and go back to when you started the fund back in the mid 2000s and what really inspired that. Yeah. And it's funny because if you'd told me nine months before I was investing that I would be a VC, I would have said there's no way that would ever happen. So I was I was living in Austin and the company I'd helped start had just gone public. And I was thinking about taking a break because, you know, I'd gone through we'd started motive in 1997. And so I'd gone through the bubble and then the bursting and then the meltdown and the nuclear winter. And then we still lived to tell the tale right on the other side of it and got public. And so I was like, you know, it would be irresponsible for me to raise any money from anybody right now. I'm just tired. I need a break. John Thornton at Austin Ventures said, hey, why don't you look at projects with us? Have you ever considered being a VC? And I said, no, I don't, I don't see any reason I'd be good at it. And I'm just not sure I'm cut out for it. So he said, well, why don't you just humor me and look at these? And I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll try. So I have to admit, after about six months of doing that, I got pretty darn interested. But then I also simultaneously took a trip to Silicon Valley to see what was happening. And I got totally enamored with what at the time was called Web 2.0. And I thought, gosh, I'm sitting on the sidelines. Uh, there's a, a major development happening in the internet. It's going to go through its second major phase. And I just need to find a way. If I'm going to do venture capital, I need to find a way to do it in Silicon Valley. And so now I panic at what I did next. I went to firms like Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia Capital and you know all the familiar suspects, Benchmark, and and said, uh, I'd like to interview for a general partner job here. And uh, I panic at what a rookie move that was in hindsight. Both Foundation Capital and August Capital were nice enough to let me spend some time at their firms as an entrepreneur in residence. And that's when I really accidentally stumbled into this idea of doing a seed fund. And so what year was that, Mike, when you raised that first seed fund? So the year I arrived at Silicon Valley was early 2005. It was like January. And uh, at the time, uh, my kids were in grade school. And so I would fly to Silicon Valley on Sunday nights and stay until Thursday afternoon. And the goal was to find something exciting in Silicon Valley venture capital by the time my kids got out of school. So uh, it didn't quite work out that way. 
wife and kids moved uh, back to the West Coast after the summer of 05, and I was still looking for a job in venture. Uh, and it was the summer of 06 that we started Maples Investments that I raised my first fund and um, started actually, you know, investing money from LPs. If I remember correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the first fund was a much smaller vehicle. I think it was 10 million and it was called Maples Investment. And then post that, you raised a larger fund in the uh, $35 million range. That was is you remember the early days of what we would consider micro VC and micro VC, I think back then was called super angel seed was just becoming a thing. Walk us through how that first fundraise was like, how did you approach it? What did you see as the opportunity? My first fund was raised almost exclusively from Austin Ventures. And so uh, when I decided to go to California and that, that was final, uh, John Thornton, said, hey, would you be interested in raising some money from Austin Ventures? And I said, sure. And he said, "How? You know, what do you think the right amount is? And we brainstormed on it. And I said, look, um, two conditions. One is, what's an amount that you would invest where if I lose it all, we won't be upset with each other, that, that we still have a good relationship? And, and John said, I, I think 15 million over you know, a three-year cycle. And I said, you know, the other thing is, we, we don't really know much about each other. You, you don't really know if you're going to like how I invest. And I don't really know if you guys know how to be a good LP. What if instead of a $15 million fund with a three-year investment window, what if we had three one-year vintage $5 million funds? And uh, what if we take the net present value of fees and apply it all in those years? And so you're not paying me fees for 10 years if this doesn't work out. So, you know, the way it would work structurally was we would have every year a $5 million tranche and I would take 400,000 in management fees as a one-time, uh, as a one-time fee. The rationale was like, let's say two years from now, I say, hey, I want to start another company again. I don't want to do this anymore. Or let's say a couple of years from now, Austin Ventures says, hey, you know what? Um, we've kind of changed our strategy. We don't, we don't, we don't want to invest in this anymore either of us would have a way out, right? So it had to be double opt-in each year. And, and then there wouldn't be this long tail of fees. We did the first tranche starting the summer of 06, and then uh, the second tranche starting in the summer of 07. That's when I shifted to starting to think about fund two and having a, a more normal uh, venture fund. So as you shifted, obviously during the time that Austin Ventures is an LP, you figured, hey, I really like this investing thing. I think I can do it. I'm going to raise a bigger fund. And there was a series of things that happened during that time. The first was going out and getting external LPs. And back then, it, you know, I think we were probably the early innings of the global financial crisis. How did you go about raising that first fund? Yeah. And, and you know, I look back on it and I had two, two big concerns. The first was, uh, could I raise a fund, right? Because I could hardly even spell the word LP. You know, I didn't know anything about LPs. And then the, the other thing that was occupying my mind was, am I set up to succeed as a solo operator, you know, almost 40-year-old white dude? So the first part, two people helped me out a great deal that I'm forever grateful to. The first was Bruce Dunleavy, 
at Benchmark. And one day I was talking to him about this idea of a seed fund, and I drew a picture that showed the gap between angels and VCs. Because at the time, people don't remember this now, but at the time, you couldn't raise a million dollars in Silicon Valley, right? You had to either scare up a few hundred thousand from angels and friends and family or go straight to a $5 million Series A. And so, so, you know, I explained to Bruce and anybody who would listen to me that I thought that, um, that more and more entrepreneurs would start great companies with only a million dollars and that 500,000 was the new 5 million and that, um, there were a set of things coming together, open source software, search engine marketing, offshore talent and, uh, technologies, uh, developers. And then, you know, Amazon was just starting uh, to get some momentum with a Amazon Web Services. And so we felt like uh, I felt like it was going to take a lot less to start a startup. And so you have this issue where the, the types of startups that are about to happen were being underserved by the capital markets at the time. And so I was talking to Bruce about this and, and uh, he says, well, why don't you pitch some LPs? And I say to Bruce, you know, I can't even spell LP. I don't, I don't know anything about them. If you asked me who the LPs are, I wouldn't even know who, the, who they are. And so he goes, well, wouldn't you like to just meet one and just see what they say? And so I was like, sure, you know, that'd be great. So um, he picks up the phone. He calls Phil Horsley at Horsley Bridge and leaves a message. And he explains to me who Horsley Bridge is and what a fund of funds is and all this stuff. It's like, you know, I panic at how naive I was at the time. And so then I, I met uh, Phil Horsley. This would have probably been, this would have been early 06, right before I raised Fund One. And I raised Fund One just with Austin Ventures because we can get into this if you're interested. I think most people who are first time fund managers are not entrepreneurial enough in how they fundraise. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm going to try to raise my fund from people I already know want to invest. And my my theory is that by the time you raise a fund for the most part people who want in have already decided they want in and that it's not a good idea in the middle of fundraising to try to make new relationships and ask them for money. So I I raised it with Austin Ventures and it, it was funny because I'd had some really good meetings with Phil and really liked him. And then after he, he reads some article in the Mercury News that I'd read that, that I'd raised this fund, he calls me and says, what's going on here? Why did you raise a fund without even pitching me on this fund? And I said, well, I just wanted to spend more time getting to know each other, not under the pressure of fundraising, right? It just changes, it changes the tenor of the conversation if I'm trying to sell you something. But now we've got a bunch of time. We, you've got a chance to see what Fund One looks like. We, we get a chance to see, you know, do, do we have similar values and would it be fun to go into business together someday? And so I would meet with them uh, over the course of the next couple of years, just every now and then, you know, once every six months or so. And so that was kind of how I started to get to know the institutional world. And then the other person who helped me out a great deal was Catherine Gould. So uh, I, met, I met her when I was in EIR at Foundation, and actually she was pretty tough on me when I was there. You know, she thought that uh, there was a lot I didn't know about the business and that, um, that I was naive in a bunch of ways. But I, I approached her after I'd raised this fund and showed her what was going on. And she said, you know, you're making very good use of your time, and I like your strategy a lot. And, you know, I think you've learned a lot. 
if you ever want to help um, fundraising, I, I'd be willing to help you strategize how to do that. So I tell Catherine, um, well, it's funny you say that because I've been spending time with Bill Horsley and some now some of the other partners at Horsley Bridge, and I think they might be interested. And Catherine says to me, look, Mike, you got your happy ears on, right? You've got hardly any track record. You're one person. Uh, I'd be very surprised if they're ready to do something. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't think I have my happy ears on. I'm, I'm tr- listening as best as I can. And I think I think Phil might want to do something. So she said, well, why don't we have another meeting with him and I'll just come with you next time. We have this meeting and, and now by now I'm getting to know everybody on the team. And in this particular meeting, pretty much everybody on the team showed up. And it's everybody on the team and me and Catherine and we walked through some things and we're going down the elevator and Catherine goes, uh, you're right. They're interested. Guess what? You're fundraising. If you can get it done with Horsley Bridge, I'll introduce you to some LPs that I really like. But you got you got to get Horsley Bridge done 100% on your own. So I said, okay, that's fair. And so then Catherine introduced me to um, uh, Judith Elsia at Weather Gauge, and then to um, the, the folks at the University of Chicago. That was fun too. Was those were the three LPs and fun too. Those are amazing stories and certainly people that have helped a lot of people and a lot of managers every time. So you're at a point where you have these great LPs. You're now fully fledged institutional capital investing and you bring on a partner in Anne. And I believe that was back in 2008 or nine. What made you decide to bring on a partner and not go down the solo route? And what was it about Anne in particular that you said, hey, I need to bring her on as a partner? One of the things I noticed when I started writing these small checks was I was being pitched by people who you would not think of as traditional startup founders. I was pitched by more African-American founders than I would have expected. I was pitched, you know, so for example, Michael Seibel was on the founding team of Twitch. Uh, I was being pitched by more females than one would have expected. And I, I tried to make sense of that because I wasn't necessarily out there trying to be especially inclusive, right? I was just following the best deals wherever I could find them. And what I concluded was that when it takes less money to prove or disprove an idea, more people can raise their hand and be entrepreneurs. If you have to raise $5 million to prove an idea, the VC has a lot of say in who an entrepreneur is and what they look like. But if you only have to raise a few hundred thousand dollars, a lot of people can try their ideas and demonstrate something real more than was possible in the past. And so I got to thinking maybe maybe one of the implications of this lean startup movement is going to be the democratization of innovation. And if that's true, uh, then Floodgate could represent something more than just we're one of the early seed funds, you know, one of the seed OGs. What we could do is we could um, have a partnership that would be matchable to this upcoming trend. And it it reminds me of like what happened later with uh, Kevin Systrom at Instagram. Uh, Kevin decided he couldn't build Instagram on his own because he wasn't technical enough. He was more design led. And so he looked for Mike Krieger. 
I believe that uh, I had an incomplete founding team. If I could have a, a gender diverse firm from day one, that there would be some big advantages to that over having uh, you know a bunch of guys and then try to recruit your first female partner later. Uh, I thought that if if we were gender diverse from day one, we could define the culture together. We could define you know our mental models together. We could define you know our, our value system together. A bunch of things, and so uh, so I started looking. So I I wouldn't say that I was like okay my I'm going to start this with a woman no matter what. I would say that I had my radar finely tuned to you know is there someone that would be fun to get in trouble with building this firm? And it took me a while, right? It took me oh about eighteen months or so to find Anne because I wasn't in any hurry. I was sort of like. Um, it's it's got to be a hell yes, right? And it turns out that Anne was uh, helping Steve Blank teach a class on customer development, and I was a mentor in the class, and I had this team that was doing a, a project. And uh, Anne, halfway through the class, sends me an email and says, "Hey, I need to talk to you." And I'm like, "Okay." And she says to me, "Your team is totally screwed up. They bicker in all the meetings with the faculty. You're not doing a good job as a mentor." keeping them focused and, you know, you need to engage better, you know, to keep this more organized. I said, Ann, you're wrong. This, we're going to get an A plus, partly just out of bravado. And, 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 and in my defense, we did end up getting an A plus, but at the same time, like as soon as the phone call was over, I was like, oh crap, I better get, I better get cracking on this. The thing that I liked about my interaction with her, she was very straight talking. Right. She would just she wouldn't say, well, you know, you might want to think about how your team could collaborate better. She'd say, Mike, you know, your team is a mess and you need to be more organized and focused and getting them more in sync. You know, so she would use very clear language to describe what she thought. And but in a respectful way. Right. She wasn't like you're an idiot. So I liked that. And I, you know, I'd been looking in lots of different places for someone to work with. And then I got to thinking about it. You know, she had been a, an analyst at Charles River. Uh, she'd been through the dot-com meltdown. She was helping teach classes at Stanford about customer development. She was very technical, much more than I was. She was very broadly smart because this class that she taught, you know, they would evaluate ideas, everything from low Earth orbit satellites to uh, social networking apps to mobile to deep tech to you know, ag tech, all these kinds of different things. And I thought, you know, I could see that working out. I could, I could see us working well together. So for a while, you know, she was getting her PhD at the time. We just decided to just hang out together and be unpartners. And we would have uh, unpartner meetings. And I would invite other unpartners like Steve Blank and Catherine Gould and then uh, Jim Anderson who'd been a, a founder at Foundation Capital. And we'd just look at pitches together. Uh, every now and then, Audrey McLean would show up. That's kind of how we got going. And it was clear very quickly that we had a good chemistry. And so I was like, you know, we need to quit calling this Maples Investments. Okay. We should turn it into a real firm. And we should decide what the firm is called together. And we should define the values of the firm together and act like founders in the truest sense of the word. No, that's great. And it's now 13 years into that partnership and, you know, investing across, I think, six different funds, 400 companies almost. 
So clearly it worked, and it was a very prescient decision early on to acknowledge and understand where the gaps in the team lied and bringing on the right person, but obviously being very patient through the process to make sure those dynamics were good. Now let's talk about that investing side. You've introduced the concept of thunder lizards, which as I understand it, are category shifting outliers. How does that instruct your investing approach at Floodgate? Yeah. So the reason that I use the metaphor thunder lizards, it it comes from Godzilla and Godzilla is hatched from uh, radioactive atomic eggs, swims across the ocean, uh, growing as it swims, as it mutates. And then it emerges with an attitude and then uh, begins to breathe fire and swipe holes in the side of tall buildings and eat train cars like they're sausage links. And uh, I always thought that that was a good metaphor for startups. And, And here's why. What I've come to believe is that if you invest in seed startups, a startup isn't a company yet. And so if you look at the biggest wins we've had, Twitch started as Justin TV, uh, Okta started as Sasher, Lyft started as Zimride, Twitter start they were going to call it Voicemail 2.0 or TWTTR. And so I got interested in, okay, why is that? Why is it that the frameworks for evaluating companies don't work for evaluating startups? And the, the reason I think that the Thunder Lizard metaphor works so well is that what we're really investing in is a capitalist mutation. And our, our job is to walk up to that atomic egg with a Geiger counter and see if it pegs the needle. Because if that egg is truly radioactive, it doesn't have to mutate into exactly the thing we expect it to mutate into. We just want it to mutate into something that's really freaking big. And I don't care if it looks like a T-Rex or a pterodactyl or one of those big prehistoric fish. I just want it to be big and disruptive and powerful and different from what anybody's seen before. And so that's what I've, over time, we've refined our understanding a lot. But what we now believe is that a startup is not a company, that what it is, is it's a a founding team and their capabilities. And then it's a powerful insight about the future that uh, rides uh, a set of inflections that are bigger than the company itself. And these inflections are the weapons that a founder and a founding team have to wage asymmetric warfare on the present. You know, inflections allow us to bend the curve of the present to a different future. And it allows the entrepreneur to come into a market with incumbents and change the subject rather than compete incrementally better. And so that's another reason I like the Thunder Lizard metaphor is I like this idea of saying our job is to to recognize the difference between atomic eggs and regular eggs. But it's it, our job is not to know precisely what's going to hatch or emerge from that egg. There's too much uncertainty. And y- you, your leap of faith on the founders is that if the insight's powerful enough, they'll navigate the insight to an idea that ultimately wins. So as you look at these, and I'll use the term atomic eggs, and in this case, it's really atomic founders with atomic ideas. What does that actually mean from an investing standpoint in terms of how you think about you know, when you come into these companies and invest, and what do you look at from a founder perspective to say this person truly has that atomic quality? 
Yeah. So there's two sets of mental models that we now have. So I got, you know, in more recent years, I became friends with Shane Parrish and really liked the Farnham Street blog. And I kind of geeked out on Charlie Munger and all that stuff. And, you know, he has all these mental models for value investing. And I got interested in uh, why has nobody come up with mental models for seed investing other than just anecdotal tribal wisdom kind of stuff. So that's what I started to do was to work on that with Anne and the, the team. And so we have two sets of them. One are founder mental models and the other are insight models. And so maybe I should start with the insights because I think that's the, the, the most counterintuitive. So what we believe is that um, insight development should happen before customer development. And if customer development was about get out of the building, insight development is about getting out of the present. And what uh, great founders really are, are time travelers. And what they do is they take a set of inflections, and some of the inflections are technology-centric, some are end-user adoption-centric. And what they do is they travel out into distant futures and imagine different futures than uh, what most people believe are going to happen. Right. So I like to say that most people live in the present. And most people project forward from the present when they try to predict the future that, you know, they, I, they forecast. And what, what great entrepreneurs do is they follow insights that are based on inflections. They arrive at different futures and then they work backwards from those different futures. You know, they backcast. The inflections are what allows the entrepreneur to bend the curve of the present to a different future. So if we go back to say let's let's just take the lift guys why why did we invest in zimride when it, before it was lift well there were two inflections one inflection was the the technology and the gps locators in the, the smartphones had gotten good enough to accurately locate people and so before the iphone 3gs that wasn't true the adoption inflection was our belief that smartphone adoption would go from 12%, which is roughly where it was in 2010, early 2010, to greater than 50% in North America fairly quickly. And so why is that important? Well, combined inflections power your why now. You know, you could say, okay, hang on a second here. If we believe that there's going to be a bunch of people with smartphones and everybody who has a smartphone can be accurately located, what's the insight? that follows from that, the insight is that you could apply the sharing economy to cars. Because, you know, in Airbnb, it already happened and we'd already invested TaskRabbit and Chegg. So we had experience in the sharing economy and we were always asking, how are smartphones going to impact the sharing economy? So then Logan and John come in and pitch us and they say, cities are designed around cars and not people and cars are 3% capacity utilized. And there's enough parking space in America to cover the entire state of Connecticut. And Anna and I kind of look at each other and we're like, these are our guys. But it wasn't so much that, oh, Zim Ride is going to be the thing that wins. It was more like the, these people have, have stumbled onto this idea that the sharing economy is now going to be able to be usable in cars and not just stationary locations like in Airbnb. The metal models for insights are all about, it's really an arbitraged future. Um, inflections create the conditions for futures that seem present improbable. What you're really doing is you're earning a secret about the future that is future more probable. And so therefore it's underpriced. 
And because it's a different future, it also has a bigger upside. It's more asymmetric. And so essentially, you're buying an underpriced future when you invest in an insight. So that's kind of the first side of it. And then the second side of it is the founders. And I like to say there's a few mental models that we have over there. Uh, one that we like is, for example, the builder and the persuader. We like startups where they have a builder who could build anything that's more conducive to pivots and navigating the product. If you can build anything, you can pivot to anything. Whereas if you can't build very many things, your degrees of freedom are much more limited in what you could build and how fast you can move. But then you also want the persuader. And the reason for that is that startups don't just identify different futures, but they have to create a movement that moves people to a different future. And so, you know, you have to have the persuasive skills to convince people to be in on your secret with you and to start a movement that gathers momentum and one day becomes the conventional wisdom. But in the early days, right, you're, you as the founder have to be the right kind of crazy and you have to convince others to be crazy with you on this quest to, to have a different future than most people believe is going to happen. And so that's why you want the builder and the persuader on the team. And then another mental model we have about founders that I like is jazz band, not marching band. And so you get a lot of people on founding teams who've had success, but they've had success in a marching band context. So, you know, marching band, they have precisely defined steps and they have precisely defined sheet music. And, and you want that when you're a company, but when you're a startup, it's more like um, if you've ever seen a jazz band in the French Quarter in New Orleans, right? Like some, the guy goes on a riff and everybody just goes on a riff with him. And, and you're never going to hear that version of the song ever again. They wouldn't even know how to play it that way again. To me, a, a startup founding team, it's more like uh, James Bond and MacGyver and Wonder Woman. And you're juking and jiving and you're, you know, zero to one-ing and it takes an unpredictable time frame and you're, you know, you're playing improv jazz on your way to someday, you know, augmenting the team with marching band skills. But, you know, in the early days, zero to one, the jazz band usually wins. And so, and then, you know, another mental model we have is around grit. How do you recognize grit in a founder before you've had a chance to observe them, you know, executing in the wild? And it's really interesting, Mike, because as a lot of folks look at firms that are generalists and think about things and say, should you be sector focused or should you be a domain expert at something? What you've clearly outlined is a way of identifying a certain theme under which you invest, being consistent around it, creating this qualitative framework that allows you to make decisions based on that theme. So I really love that mental framework. What I'd be curious, however, is how does that then play into the portfolio construction? So you're investing in people that are, you know, again, going back to the word atomic, that the company could change over time and the business model could change. So you might be taking a little bit more risk to a certain degree. How does that instruct the actual portfolio construction? What have you learned over the last 13 years? Here's how we look at it. And this was another place where the LPs really helped me a lot. So I went to our LPs and I asked them, have you ever had a successful fund where a single outcome didn't more than return the entire fund? And the basic answer was no. What that leads you down a path of is saying, this business is about 
making investments in companies that will more than return the fund by themselves when they work. And, and, and to take it a step further as an approximation, if we want to have a 5x fund, we believe that the best exit needs to return 2.5x the fund by itself. So we, it's kind of the power law at work, right? Like the power law suggests that your biggest exit is more than all the other ones combined. And so if you look at that as a curve, you'd say the biggest exit will be bigger than all the other ones combined. And then the next biggest exit will be about half as big as your biggest because you know the area under the subsequent curve continues to be equal. So we're like, okay, and what we call, we have this term that we coined called RTFE, which stands for return the fund exit. And so when, when we make an investment and when we maintain an investment, we always know if it exited today, what would the valuation need to be for it to return the fund by itself? At the time that we write our first check, we ask, what's the RTFE value of this company? How big your fund size is then is a function of a very important trade-off. If you make too many investments, even in the case that you're right, you won't return the fund with just that investment. You know, if, if we make 90 investments in a fund and one of 90 of them returns the fund, it may not have enough magnitude because you know you, you didn't own enough of that company. You know, you spread your bets across 90 companies instead of say 30 companies. And so you need to own enough of the good ones, but you also need to have enough shots on goal to have fund returners. To us, that's the real calculus is however big your fund is, and this is why I like to say your fund size is your strategy, uh, however big your fund is, what you're really promising your LPs is, what will the magnitude of our biggest exit be if we execute our strategy? And to me, that's what the real bet is on any given fund. Maybe just going to a very direct question, what do you think that translates into the number of companies that you think are ideal within a portfolio? And what is the ideal mix between initial checks and follow-on reserves within a fund? A person that I admire a great deal, uh, Bill Wood, uh, who was at Austin Ventures earlier than Silverton and now invests his own money, probably one of the most, uh, if, if you said to me, who's somebody who's had incredible monster returns that not everybody knows about, I'd say Bill Wood is right up there. And Bill told me when I was first getting into the business that he thought that the minimum number of investments for statistical diversification was 12. Once you get past 25, the marginal benefits of statistical diversification start to go down. So in other words, if you make less than 12 investments uh, and have a fund returner or multiple fund returners, it may be due to your skill, but it's not as obviously explainable to your skill, it, right? It may have to do more with randomness than you think. But if you invest in more than 25 companies without a fund returner, you don't have very many excuses. Once you pass the frontier of 25, your marginal, you know, the marginal benefit gain that you get isn't as high as a lot of people think. So I internalize that as we're crazy early risky, right? Much, much earlier and riskier than Bill invests. So I thought I would err more on the 25 to 30 side in a portfolio. And then, but then, you know, you have to manage the trade-off, right? So okay, we're going to do 30 investments. How big is our fund? That's X, you know, and then we have upfront and reserves. Okay, that's upfront dollars per fund across that number of deals. 
that's this many dollars per deal. Is that more than we should invest per deal? Should we do more deals? Is that not enough? Should we do fewer deals? And so you have you have two trade-offs. I like to say, how much do we want to own going in? And then uh, what I like to call your picking skill, which is what percent of your picks return the fund. And so, you know, if you have 1% picking skill, you'd be crazy to do 25 deals. But if you have 5% picking skills, it would be hard to support the idea of doing more than 25. So, you know, your that's why your fund size is a strategy, right? Your fund size is a commitment to what your largest exit profit deal will be. And it's a bet on your picking skill and how much you can own of these. And, and, and the picking skill and how much you can own are directly opposing variables that you got to yeah. find the efficient frontier about. As I've talked to a number of people about, I think that in venture investing, of course, you need that massive outlier. And I totally agree with the concept that you need a fund returner, a single company that can return the fund or more. And oftentimes that results in an enterprise value of that company being at least a billion dollars given traditional math of ownership and dilution. But I think the other thing that I wanted to dig into, Mike, is it's also the things that you can do to tilt the odds. Invest early, take more ownership, follow on in the right companies, of course, and make sure you reserve an optimal amount to be able to double down on your best bets. Have you changed your model? I remember us having a conversation where you said with Fund 2, which has been highly successful, it could have been even better with a slightly better portfolio construction model with reserves. Can you maybe share some insights on that piece of it? Yeah. So it's interesting. Fund 1, necessity was the mother of invention. And so it was uh, 70% upfront, 30% reserves. And it was just because I didn't have any money. Right, it was I could bar barely had enough money to write the first checks I wanted to write, and so in fund two, we're like, you know, most of the venture fund managers I talk to are saying they do fifty fifty, or maybe even less upfront, more in reserves. Maybe we shouldn't take so much risk now that we have you know legitimate LPs, and so we decided to do fifty fifty. In hindsight, I look back on fund two, I don't feel necessarily bad about it, right? So far, it's like a 6X fund. So it's not like a bad fund. And, you know, we had companies like Lyft and Okta. But if you deconstruct fund two, a couple things are interesting. Okay, so we were 50-50 instead of 70-30. If we had decided instead to be 70-30, you write all the same checks or, you know, you make all the same bets, 100% the same bets, but it's 70% upfront, 30% reserve. And you made no decisions differently at all, provide no different value to the portfolio companies, we would have had another one and a half to two X just for that one decision, right? Like it would have taken no extra work to generate another one and a half to two X. So now we'd be at uh, almost eight X. And then you say, okay, now let's, let's also look at it in a different way. What were the top third companies? What were the middle third? What were the bottom third? And in fund one and two, they were remarkably similar. So the bottom third, we basically lost 99% of our money on that basket companies in, in both fund one. And, and then interestingly, the middle third, fund one was like 0.99x and fund two was like 1.01x, right? Remarkably similar. And then all the returns came from the top one third. I mean, for, for all practical purposes, right? So then you ask, okay, in fund one and two, 
How much of our follow-on dollars went into the top third companies? It was worse than random. And I looked at that and we all looked at it as a team and we're like, that's terrible. Because like every dollar of LP's money counts. And so what were we doing? We were being too nice, right? We were trying to keep companies alive that just weren't going to get there. And we were also not understanding that pro rata rights are a right that you should avail yourself of if you really believe in the company. And so we weren't, you know, and in our defense, we thought, well, we're seed investors. We're not series A, series B investors. That's not our core competency. You know, we may not, we may not get that right. So we, we clearly made a mistake of hoping that by keeping more companies alive, we'd have more exit optionality and more ways to win. But what we should have done is double down. So that was the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned is that I just disagree with a whole lot of fund managers in seed based on the data. So a lot of, a lot of fund managers in seed, I believe, make two very fundamental mistakes. One is they say, you need a big portfolio so that you can get winners. And the reason I think that that is just theoretically wrong is that if you have a big portfolio, even in the case when you get winners, you own less of them, which means you own less pro rata rights. And so if you make fewer bets and get a winner, not only do you own more from the first check, but your pro rata rights are more compelling. Owning fewer is a better way for you to get the upside on the Thunder Lizard companies if you have reasonably good picking skill. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I bet you that if LPs did the analysis with every seed fund and compared the, the magnitude of their returns and follow-on dollars compared to their upfront first checks, almost all seed funds would be scandalously bad. And so the, the false wisdom that a lot of the seed funds have, in my opinion, is they say, well, I invested in these companies. I wrote the first check. I know these companies better than the Series A market knows these companies because I've been working with these founders. But again, that's not consistent with what they've said. If you have a big portfolio, if you've got 90 companies, how do you know what's going on in all 90? You don't. And so like you don't have the, you know, you know something that isn't so. So that's kind of one problem with it. The other problem with it is that I give the Series A market a lot of credit for knowing what a good Series A deal should look like. Floodgate has its own portfolio of seed deals. Well, Benchmark and Sequoia and Excel and all these firms, they get to look at all the deals we've done, plus the deals that Steve Anderson's done over at Baseline or Roger Ehrenberg over at IA Ventures or Michael Deering at Harrison Metal. And so I don't get to invest in Michael Deering's Series A deals. I don't get, get to invest in uh, Roger Ehrenberg's Series A deals. Not only does Sequoia and Benchmark have more expertise in what a good Series A deal looks like, I mean, if they didn't, we should be a Series A firm, right? But not only that, but they have more investment optionality than we have. And so what I started to realize is, here's what I think I learned at a meta perspective. And it's so obvious in hindsight, because like when I first met Dave Swenson at Yale, he said... The, the single most important decision you make is your allocation decision. What is 70-30 versus 50-50? It's your allocation decision, right? And, and like people don't realize that, that, right? Just that one simple choice of what's your upfront versus your reserves has a much more fundamental impact 
on your fund returns than most people realize. And you don't have to do any extra work. It's just having the right answer, making the right choice. But then the other thing that people don't realize is that in follow-on rounds, I would argue it looks a lot more like index investing than people realize. If Benchmark and Sequoia have more skill in Series A, and Benchmark and Sequoia have more optionality in doing Series A, then when those two firms choose to invest in one of our companies for the Series A, you could make a strong case that you should take your pro rata rights then, if you believe in the company, right? Now, that's like index investing though, right? You're saying, if somebody great follows me, pay extra attention. But here's what most seed fund managers get wrong. They say, well, I didn't get a good Series A follow-on, but I just know this company better than the market does. And I find in almost all cases, they know something that isn't so. To me, the, the valid reason to follow on preemptively and aggressively is one and only one case. And that is when you really know something the market doesn't know yet about this company. Like if I know this company's breaking out, if I know it's having a massive inflection, I also know it's going to take Silicon Valley about 30 days to figure that out. I need to make a choice about whether I want to preemptively invest more in the company then. But it's like, you better know, right? Because like most people make that investment as a seed extension or, you know, some euphemism for bridge round. And uh, I, I think that that's usually doesn't work out. Amazing advice, Mike. And you actually preempted my question of what type of advice would you give for all of the uh, sea of emerging managers and seed managers that are coming to market? What I want to move to is our final segment, which we call Heat Check. And it's a series of three questions, rapid fire. And the first question is, looking back at your career, what was your biggest career mistake and your learning from it? My biggest career mistakes have come from being too optimistic. I had some things really go my way early. You know, Chegg did this pivot into textbook rentals and it worked out. And Justin TV pivoted into Twitch and NG Moco pivoted and it worked out. And then Twitter, you know, pivoted from audio podcasting to voicemail 2.0 to Twitter. And I think I overestimated the ability for companies to just uh, pivot into something magical and new and we'd figure this out. And so in uh, funds uh, three and four, I think that I threw good money after bad in some companies that uh, they just weren't good enough. Uh, so that, I'd say that was my biggest mistake. And then the other one is um, related to what we just talked about, like not um, getting tighter about uh, our return strategy. But I think in, in, in that regard, we've probably turned that weakness into a strength. Like we've, we've gone so far now as um, we believe that follow-on investing is about governance inside of a venture firm. And so Iris Choi is our partner who does 100% of follow-on investing decisions, independent of the first check partners. And so what Iris is willing to do is to say, the checks I write, I'm willing to be accountable for the same aggregate returns as the, as the fund as a whole. If she can't, then our reserve should be even smaller. And if she can do better than the fund as a whole, our reserves ought to be bigger. But that is the valid way to think about reserves, in my opinion, right? Like, what is the equilibrium where the, the multiple on reserves is the same as the multiple on first checks? That's interesting. I had not known that was the uh, the model you employed. 
But moving to another aspect of mistakes, and every venture firm that's been around for any period of time has an anti-portfolio that often rivals some of the top decile funds that they actually manage. And of course, there's some survivorship bias there. But what was your biggest investment mistake? And did you learn anything from that particular mistake? Yeah, my biggest by far, well, no, there's a lot of big ones, but um, that, <laughs> my biggest was this company called Airbed and Breakfast. Michael Seibel introduced it to me and I met with Brian along with Ann and the meeting was kind of a mess. You know, he came in with these cereal boxes, Obama O's and Captain McCain Crunch. And, uh, and, and then his presentation didn't work because it was on the network and his server wasn't working. And so he explained it to me and it's like, this was happening the, w- the week after the Craigslist killings were the top story of the news. We didn't end up doing it. And um, after we missed that one, and after we missed pager duty, I started to feel a, a great sense of anxiety about what are we missing here? And so I started to, you know, we talked earlier about thunder lizards and atomic eggs. Um, I started to work on this project that we called Jurassic. And Jurassic studies the fossil records of thunder lizards. And what we would do is we would take all the ones we said yes to that worked, and we would forensically study what was the intro email, what were the, the conversations between people at Floodgate about the deal, what was the pitch deck, uh, what was the deal that happened, how big was the check that we wrote, and then what subsequent rounds happened through the entire history of the company, and how long should we have followed on such that every check we wrote would have been at least 5x. And then we did the same for the ones that we'd said no to, DoorDash, Airbed and Breakfast, uh, PagerDuty. What we tried to do is understand what is the question where had we asked it, it would have revealed the answer that would have caused us to say yes. And in the case of Airbnb, I didn't ask the question that turned out the earned secret. So, So the earned secret for Brian Chesky was that he couldn't afford to go to a design conference in town. And so he put his uh, apartment up on Craigslist with an air mattress. And much to his surprise, he got like uh, several hundred replies. And he's like, wow, that's not what I would have expected at all. I mean, imagine how counterintuitive that must have felt, you know, in late 07, early 08. So, but he takes it a step further. He says, why did that happen? Oh, it's because all the hotels are booked. Um, Why are all the hotels booked? Oh, I get it because we have a conference. Well, what's the hotel business anyway? How long have hotels been around? Why do people go to hotels? Oh, they go to hotels because of trust. But before that, they used to stay in people's houses. I wonder if you could use ratings and reviews to get trust. If I had asked the question that had teased out the exact answer I just gave right there, I would have known to make the investment. So like the mental model that we wrote down was the earned secret. And so some people say to me, well, his presentation was screwed up. How are you supposed to know? But, but I'm like, no, you have to say, I failed to extract the insight, regardless of how I failed, right? Like Airbnb is doing just fine. Brian Chesky is doing just fine. And so if you fail to extract the insight, regardless of how they present, it's, you, it's on you as the investor. And so what we've done, all of our mental models about teams and insights have come from this forensic Jurassic analysis, if you will, and understanding the questions that indicate the things that could go right that you should pay extra attention to that might be the source of more profound signal 
most of our mistakes have obviously been first checks and follow on checks. And so the goal with these mental models is to understand uh, when to ride them, when not to ride them. And obviously, the, I would say that not doing Airbnb is a bigger mistake than any of those previously described mistakes because our $250,000 allocation would have been worth almost a billion dollars. So that's uh, that one was a shame. But fortunately, we got our share of a few too. So Final question. You brought up a number of names who helped shepherd the early days of Maples and then Floodgate. But is there an investor out there you admire the most? Who is it and why? It's a combination of Roger Ehrenberg and Steve Anderson for similar and different reasons. In the Series A world, um, I've actually been saying this for a while, but now it's probably pretty topical. Mike Spicer at Sutter Hill. Over the longer run, I would say uh, Don, Don Valentine and Mike Moritz at Sequoia. I'd say that uh, Andy Radcliffe and Bruce Dunleavy, Bill Gurley, Peter Fenton at Benchmark. And, and the, you know, in terms of just as a, as a person, I have a lot of regard for Kevin Compton as well. And I think he's done. A, he's been a great venture capitalist as well in his Clyde Perkins days and more recently Radar. I mean, those are amazing people and certainly um, people that a lot of investors do admire. Mike, this has been a really fun conversation. I'm looking forward to having you on next time. There's probably hours of content that we can cover. But thanks again for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Samir. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Mike and Floodgate, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.